Hello, everyone, my discovering listeners. Matter of fact, I really need to come up with like a she discovered listeners tribe posse kind of name. So I need y'all to help me out with that. Um, why don't you DM me at she discovered podcast on Instagram or email me at she discovered podcast at gmail.com. What should this tribe of discovering evolving listeners be called? I really want a name for y'all. Well, summer is officially over and I'm back to finish season five. I'm in season five, y'all. This one woman show, Oiled Machine, I'm approaching 50 completed audio and visual episodes combined, and I feel proud, uh, grateful, blessed, and appreciative, definitely. Grateful to my guests for their willingness to be part of the show, for their informative and thought-provoking insight. Definitely blessed to have the opportunity to even create and develop this show episode after episode and season after season. Because I literally thought I was going to be done at season one or two. It's not easy, but it's rewarding and it definitely warms my spirit. My guest today is Jennifer Norton, the owner of Norton Estate Planning, an elder law firm. Back in 2008, Jennifer graduated from Morier School of Law and confined her practice to the area of estate planning. In 2009, she became a member of the National Network of Estate Planning Attorneys, uncovering her passion and gaining substantial legal training in estate and tax planning. In this enlightening episode of Mind Your Estate, We dive deep into the critical topic of estate planning and generational wealth, exploring the intricacies of securing your financial legacy for future generations via the importance of wills, trust, and assigning a power of attorney, making sure that your assets are distributed according to your wishes, understanding that the strategy of preserving and protecting your wealth is necessary. So don't miss this opportunity to take control of your legacy and leave a lasting impact impact on your future generations to come. This Around the Way girl wants to chat with you. She's discovering new information in this world that surrounds her, tapping into her inner power, her sexuality, and taking ownership of her insecurities. She discovered she had to unlearn some things. Come and enjoy her moments of reflection, re-education, redefinition, and evolution. Kick back, sip some wine, take a drive, whatever your vibe. Join me, your host, Shay Sana, with She Discovered Podcast. So stay tuned. You might learn some things. Disclaimer. The information provided here is intended for general informational purposes only and should not be considered as legal advice. Estate planning is a complex area of law that varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and the specific circumstances of each individual can greatly impact the appropriate legal strategies and solutions. Consultation with a licensed attorney or an estate planning specialist is crucial to ensure that your estate plan is properly structured and in compliance with current legal requirements. In no event will we be liable for any loss or damage resulting from reliance on the information provided in this episode and any use of this information is solely at your own risk. Always seek professional legal advice before making any decisions or taking any actions related to estate planning matters. Talking about estate planning, we're talking about wills, we're talking about trusts, and I'm so excited that Jennifer Norton is here to discuss these items with us because for myself being in my late 30s, I think growing up, we always thought about you know, dealing with wills. First of all, I never heard about trust. I thought it was a, forgive me, a Caucasian thing where you hear about kids that get a trust fund and, you know, but with our families, we always thought about wills when somebody's either on their deathbed or if somebody is getting into their, you know, old age, so they need to start making a will. But of course, in today's climates, especially with certain celebrities or rappers that we hear about passing away, and then there's so much discord and turmoil amongst families because they're trying to figure out who gets what, who gets what estate, who gets royalties and all these different things. So I think for us as a community, as Black people specifically, it is very important that we change the narrative of how we view generational wealth um, and how we view living, um, leaving assets 
to our family members or even our children. So today, again, thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us on She Discovered Podcast. No, thank you for having me. Can you describe what you do in totality and what brought you to this line of work? I help individuals preserve, protect, and pass generational wealth. Um, And we do that by kind of ascertaining what their goals are for themselves and for their family members. And then we kind of back in into the um, type of planning that will meet their goals and their needs. What kind of attracted me to the area? I mean, I really wasn't attracted to the area. I actually have a finance degree from IU's Kelly School of Business. Um, And then I really kind of had a panic attack and (laughs) didn't really like what I was doing and all the internships. And so I said, okay, I got to figure it out. And I assumed that lawyers could do anything. And so I said, let's just, I convinced myself and my best friend, I said, let's just go to law school and we can buy some more time to kind of figure this stuff out. Just like that. (laughs) Just like that. And she was like, okay. So we applied and I came back and I was like, hey, you know, let's go over the schools we got into. And she's like, what? I only applied to one. I'm like, what? <laughs> and I applied to one. I was like, well, which one did you apply to? She's like, IU. I was like, well, I guess that's where we're going. So yeah. we went to staying down that IU, which is now called Mauer School of Law in Bloomington. And then um, <clears throat> when I graduated, I ran into this organization called the National Network of Estate Planning Attorneys. And they just had a, a business model that made sense for me. And so when I graduated, I ended up working for the CEO of the National Network of Estate Planning Attorneys for about four and a half years. Mm -hmm. And kind of like you, I realized my community really didn't understand the need, let alone trust-based estate planning, which is all I learned when I first started doing estate planning. And so I said, well, I got to leave here in order to get to the people that need me most, uh, in my view, who have been lacking for so many years. And so I left there and I've had my practice for the last nine and a half years since. So it really was just God, you know, (laughs) really like showing up at the right time. Cause you know, I never, I took one estate planning class in law school and estate planning is the perfect marriage of my finance background because we're looking at all of a person's assets, trying to coordinate them with the law. So it ain't nothing but God. Going through your, your website and your social media page, I was really impressed and just appreciative of the work that you do. And of course, I'm sorry, coming from a sister, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) yes, like there's more people um, within our community, people of color that are now tapping into the necessities that we've always needed, Mm -hmm. right? And it makes us feel like, okay, you're here for us. So seeing the information that you're putting out, the families that you're helping, changing the narrative and the perspective perspective of like, let's reevaluate what generational wealth really means. Let's reevaluate how we conduct our finances in the sense of like what we leave for our families or how we set up our finances just for ourselves. So I I really, really appreciate the work um, that you do. So I commend you for that. Thank you you so much. I get that all the time. A lot of my clients that call me, they're just like, you're a black woman, you know, because there's not many us in the space, you know, and my name is kind of ambiguous. So it's not like you would be able to know that unless you Mm -hmm. see me and then, you know, decided to come in. But yeah, I I get that all the time. And it's, it's rewarding. It's, it's a little daunting because it's pressure. You know, you really want to find people to take over and to succeed me. And you know what I mean? That are going to live up to the same standard provide the same service and be as passionate about it as me. And so that's the daunting part because it's not the most sexy topic. Like people are not going to law school thinking I'm going to be an estate planning attorney. No, no. Right. (laughs) Right. But it's, it's in this climate, in this climate, I think it's more so needed, especially with the rise of black entrepreneurship. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. COVID did a good, I mean, it did a a justice to the entrepreneur. It made people wake up and realize your job is not secure necessarily with your employer. And if you have a dream or an idea that could possibly have some traction, then you now's the time to, you know, take a Mm -hmm. shot at seeing if it's, if it's worth something. And, you know, people are just diversifying. You're realizing that you don't have to go to, you know, these big organizations in order to get the need, the things that you need. Thank you for tuning into the episode thus far. I want to remind you that She Discovered also has episodes on our YouTube channel, She Discovered Podcast Extension. 
As you enjoy audio episodes, tune in for further discussions on topics like spirituality, dating, sexuality, and entrepreneurship. And don't forget to click that subscribe button and notification bell to be updated on new released episodes. Finally, if you'd like to donate to the production of this podcast, please check out the link in the show notes. Thank you for being a part of my discoveries and enjoy the rest of the show. The business owner in particular, you know, that's a big need in the estate planning field because you set up these businesses without succession, without operating agreements. So we know how to run it. And the entrepreneur is just kind of entrepreneuring. <laughs> they're mm-hmm. around being great, um, but they're not leaving any uh, documentation or any plans so that the family can either succeed or, you know, sell the business um, so that they can reap the rewards of all that hard work. Yeah, that's true. And as you mentioned, the pandemic, I think there was like a big shift, not saying these things did not exist, right? Like black entrepreneurship, but as well as us owning real estate, us tapping into stocks and investments. So I feel like there's so much more now for us to protect. Yeah. So it, it makes sense that, okay, you may not have a business, but now you have property. How are you protecting that property? You know? Mm-hmm. So I definitely want us to dive in. I guess I'll start off with this one. What is the difference between a will and a trust and which one is better? Because, you know, I've always heard about wills. Right. I've really heard about trust. But then as I start to hear it in my circles, it sounds like people are saying having a trust is better than having a will. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's usually where everyone starts. And I always ask people kind of what are your goals first? If a lot of people will tell you their goal is to avoid probate, which this is, that's that morbid scavenger hunt when a death occurs and people are trying to figure out what you own, where is it, what to do with it. And so the court says it tries to slow people down to make sure a person's final debts, taxes, and expenses are all wrapped up prior to beneficiaries inheriting. And so the probate process affords creditors because most people don't know everything a person owns. So the probate process allows for any unknown creditors an opportunity to file into the estate. Um, They have to, how they're notified is usually we have to publish notice in the city's local paper and the county local, local paper where the person lived. And it runs for a certain time period. So like in Indiana, it runs for 90 days. And then those creditors have to file into the estate to say, hey, I'm owed a debt. And they have to show evidence of it, swear on the penalties mm. of perjury, um, and pay a filing fee to the court. If they do all of these things, they have perfected their claim. And then what I do is I encourage the representative or the administrator to go and try to negotiate that debt down because they did everything right um, to kind of have a hearing on that debt. If they fail to do everything right in Indiana, they will it, the court will issue what's called a 41E dismissal hearing to dismiss the claim, and then we'll distribute to your heirs. Now, every state statute has... Um, a different can have a different distribution. In Indiana, if a person is married, that doesn't mean all the assets go to the spouse. In fact, half of the assets will go to the spouse and half will go to uh, the children in Indiana if the person fails to put their spouse on the accounts as a joint owner uh-huh. or as a beneficiary on the life insurance, the retirement plans, or the annuities, right? So if you're not listed as an owner or a beneficiary, then the state statute dictates how to distribute the assets. So what a will does is a will says, I don't like the default. So I'm going to come up with my own terms. But what people miss is it's instructing the probate judge on how to distribute other than the statute. So what most people are missing is that wills, all wills go through probate. So when I say if you have goals and your goal is to avoid probate, then you may not want a will because wills tell the court how to distribute typically contrary to what the default in the statute is. So when you hear people say, oh, he should have had a will and he would have been gone going through this, that's actually not true. He still would have went through the probate process. It just would have been a little less painful maybe because now we know exactly what the person wanted instead of just guessing or having to settle with the state statute allocation. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So I guess just going a little bit back, because I'm already thinking about my audience where they're like, Shay, break it down for us, please. (laughs) Where, so let's say if I do have my spouse as the beneficiary and I don't have a will in place, and if I was to, to pass, does that automatically mean all my assets go to my spouse? Because I had him as a yes. Okay. Yes. So you okay. can avoid probate 
by simply putting beneficiaries on everything. In fact, that's what we do in Indiana. When my clients come to me and they're saying, I want to avoid probate, my beneficiaries, they're fine. They do well. I don't care what they do with the money. Then I'm going to say, how about let's prepare a will that we're never going to use, but let's put beneficiaries on all of your assets. Because in Indiana, we can even put beneficiaries on your car at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles and on any real estate. Now, real estate is state specific, but in Indiana, we can do what's called a transfer on death deed. Essentially, we're putting a beneficiary on any real estate that a person owns so that the minute a death occurs, ownership transfers to that beneficiary. We just have to go to the recorder's office once the death occurs and the beneficiaries have to file either a survivorship or heirship affidavit, like heir to the throne, an heirship affidavit where you're just, it's a, a state that you're um, swearing to under penalty of perjury that your loved one has died, you're the beneficiary, and there's no probate. So essentially what happens in our state, in my clients, we never use the will. The will's only there, for instance, let's take your scenario and let's say your married couple forgot to put an asset in the net, you know, add their beneficiary or have a joint owner. And in fact, a, a long lost relative made them a beneficiary of their estate, but they mm -hmm. had died and they never updated. Well, then the will tells these assets where to go. And if the family say everybody's died and but they disinherited a child, well, the state statute would have gave it to all the children. Mm -hmm. but because you did a will, the will says, no, actually disinherit the one, but give this unexpected asset to someone else. Just like there's a class action lawsuit going on for perms right now, right? So if you've ever had a perm and you, um, you know, then you're eligible to be a potential beneficiary in this class action lawsuit. Well, who knows when that check's going to come, right? Mm -hmm. And when they settle. So when that settlement check comes, if the person, God forbid, had died, then again, the will is like your last record of who should get everything, but you got to go through probate to distribute it. Now, there is a threshold because the co courts are overwhelmed with deaths. So there is, every state has a threshold that says if your state is less than a certain amount, your estate is too small for full-blown probate. And a lot of states will call it a small estate administration. Mm -hmm. And so in Indiana, it's $100,000. So if you died and your estate is valued at less than $100,000. And we can subtract out credit card debt. We can subtract out mortgages and funeral costs. Anything we subtract, though, we got to pay. So mm -hmm. we can subtract it down and we can avoid a probate, a full-blown probate in our state. But essentially, everybody's estate will go through probate if they fail to do an estate plan mm -hmm. and if they get a will. The only way you would avoid it is if you did, um, if your estate was too small, or you did, you potentially did a trust. Okay. Yes. So yes, let's talk about the trust then and how it differs with the will. So the trust is just like a will in, in that it is a set of instructions that tells your property where to go. It can avoid probate. I'm still an attorney. Can, not will. With a trust, you have to retitle all of your assets into the name of that trust. So just like what, if you wanted to avoid probate, you could put beneficiaries on all of your assets. With a trust, um, you're changing the names on your account. So I have a trust. So my bank account doesn't say Jennifer Norton. It says a Jennifer Norton Living Trust, dated June or whatever date, right? My investment accounts, Jennifer Norton Living Trust. The beneficiaries on my life insurance, Jennifer Norton Living Trust. The beneficiaries on my retirement are coordinated with the name of that trust. Even my house, the deed, everyone owns your house. The mortgage is only a lien on the property. So mm -hmm. my house... Uh, so that if I sell it, they get paid back first. So my the deed to my house, I've updated to reflect the name of my trust. And then if you have a business, your business is in your name. Well, wills control things that when you die are left in your name. So your business would go through probate if you had a will. So if you have a trust, you would need to either update the operating agreement to reflect the name of your trust, or you could do what's called an assignment, which is just like a step, a separate standalone document that says, hey, I have a business, all my right title and interest, I want to transfer to my business at my death. And so what happens when a death occurs is the court says, if you have a trust, your instructions are in that trust. We won't get involved as long as everything is titled in the name of that trust, because your instructions are in this trust. So a trust, um, just to make it even more like visually easy to understand, mm -hmm. a trust is a stack of papers, a stack of papers within these instructions. It's titled the name of your trust. You could call it whatever you want, the legacy trust, the Cadillac trust, the biblical scripture trust, whatever you want to call this stack of papers, that is the trust. 
Then you take the name that you just called those stack of papers and you put it on each of your accounts so that when a death occurs, these the instructions can control that account. Because if you don't, imagine you did life insurance and you had, say I had you as the beneficiary, but in my trust, I said, actually, I wanted to go to XYZ organization and 50% to my child and a, a slither, you know, to my nieces. Well, if I don't change the beneficiary on that life insurance policy, the minute the death occurs, it becomes yours. What I have in my instructions will never control it because I'm not, my trust isn't the beneficiary. So my rules in my trust oh. can't control those assets. So okay. you change the beneficiary so that the rules in this document can control that trust. I see. I see. And I think that's probably where we mess up because we're not cohesive. Right. Anything, there's like some information here, some information. Yes. Here. I can see how we could get very ugly. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, I'll be like, well, I'm the be- beneficiary. And I'm like, well, the trust said this. And it's like, well, that wasn't updated. So. Yes. And that's where people get amiss. Like sometimes when you're following people on like these Instagram and TikTok and all these other platforms, what they don't know, they've never settled a a trust, like never. I've settled so many. And so they don't know how it really plays out of death. They're just being very hypothetical. And what happens is when you get a trust, you still get a will, but it's known as a pour over will. And so what that means is it says, if I leave anything outside of my trust solely in my name with no joint ownership, no beneficiary, solely in my name, the will, which controls any assets that are left in my name, it goes and gets it and pours it over to the trust. Mm. So, but remember, all wills go through probate. probate. So there are a lot of people that have a trust, but they didn't retitle all of their assets. Their will says, go get them and pour them over. And that's the probate. So people with trust can still go through probate if they don't retitle everything today. If they leave it to happen at a death, then that's when your estate goes through probate. And if someone is upset about, say you did disinherit somebody in the trust, if you didn't retitle everything to the trust, then their goal is gonna be to knock the will out because the will is the bridge, right? After a death to get your assets to the trust. So if they don't like what's in the trust, they're going to say, well, mama was coerced. She was had dementia. She, you know, she was influenced. And they're going to try to knock that will out so that the bridge cannot get those assets to the trust. And then you're left to the state statute within mm-hmm. would include that disinherited child. So it's really important. One of the most important things about an estate plan is you got to retitle your assets if you're doing a trust. But to take it even further, people are still missing the benefits of a trust, which is one, yes, it can avoid probate, which they're not. And then two, you need to leave assets in trust for the next generation so that they can be protected. What a lot of people do is they get this trust and then the trust says, well, at my death, just give it outright to my beneficiary. Then they can take it, put it in their bank accounts under their social security numbers. And then if they have lawsuits, creditors, divorces, their estate is tied to their social security number. So um, if they lose, then the inheritance you left to them is also swept up in that divorce. Ooh, let's talk about that. So how can that be avoided? So in, in or, when you do a trust to avoid that, you don't want to leave anything outright free of trust. What you want to do is you want to leave assets in trust. So when When you get a trust, a lot of people are like, oh, I have a trust, so my stuff is insulated. No, it's not. When you get a revocable living trust, one that you can change as long as you're alive, when you retitle, everything stays under your social security number. So when you're retitling your bank accounts, everything is still staying under your social security number. So if I'm alive and I have a lawsuit, a creditor divorce, my social security numbers are tied to my estate. And if I lose, then the assets, no matter whether they were in trust or not, are still available to that creditor. Mm-hmm. However, when I die, if I when I die, my social security number dies with me, right? And so the IRS says, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to give it to the beneficiary outright free of trust so we can put it under their social security so that we can track it, right? So we can get our investments and tax it, et cetera. Or option two, you can leave assets in trust, meaning think of it like a little trust let for your beneficiaries. If you had three kids, you have each have three separate trust lets with their name on it as an, an irrevocable trust. And then you go get an EINA, Federal Employee Identification Number, 
for the new account. So imagine you have a bank account and you have an investment account and you have three kids. So when you, and you did a revocable living trust. So when you do your revocable living trust, everything stays under your name. You flip it into your um, trust name when you get the trust. So when you die, no probate. Then um, what you do is after your death, because there's no probate, now we have to set up three separate accounts. We may keep it at the same institutions that you have, but we're going to take your bank account and your investment account. And imagine we're going to divide it into three accounts. We're going to flip the name from your trust now. And it's going to say child one irrevocable trust on count one, uh, child two irrevocable trust on account two, and child three irrevocable trust on count, uh, account three. And then we're going to get an EIN. We're going to go to the federal government, just like when you set up an LLC, and we're going to get a federal employee identification number for each of those three separate accounts um, for your child's trust. And then we'll do the same thing for the investments. We'll slice it into threes, take the same trust name, take the same EIN. Now, each child has a different EIN from each other. So that way, if they have a lawsuit, a creditor or divorce, then of course their estate is available to that creditor. But what you left them doesn't have their social security number. It has its own EIN, its own trust let name on it with its oh. own. So, so now there's no, there's asset protection. So the creditors can't get into the estate to take those accounts. It's like when they tell you to set up a LLC because yes. you don't want a business under your name because if someone was to sue, they'll come for you directly That's compared exactly. to coming to the business. Yes. Okay. So with the example that you gave, because I don't want my audience to feel confused, like, yo, this is too much. I ain't doing all that. But in the sense of like, with that example, if there's a mother and she had a trust, but she was like, oh yeah, it just goes to my beneficiary. Um, This is my daughter and that's it. But in case of, like you said, a lawsuit or a divorce, you don't want to know that you left this, let's say example, this house to my daughter mm -hmm. and in her divorce, she now loses this house. Correct. So are you saying the mother should have set up the trust, but set up in a sense of irrevocable and on top of that, switch it to not her social security, but switch it to an EIN number? It, that all happens at a death. So she would set up a revocable living trust that she could control, add stuff, buy stuff, and add, keep adding to the trust. At her death, then the revocable trust becomes irrevocable. It says it in the document. Upon okay. my death, the trust becomes irrevocable. And I will go get an EIN, not she because she's deceased. But right. the attorney would go get an EIN for the trust. And if she only has one daughter, then we have one trust. If we have three daughters, we're going to go get three EINs. And we'll name them after each child's um, name. But after their name, it's going to say irrevocable trust because the trust revocable trust became irrevocable. Should everyone be educated themselves in doing this or will the attorney automatically know to do this? Because it's like you also don't want to get screwed over. So yeah. should we as ourselves have that information that if th the mother in this scenario was to pass and then although the document says turn it into a irrevocable trust? Will the attorney automatically know, okay, I have to go get an EIN number for you and such? Or should I know to say, hey, remember to do this also? Hey, that Now, that's the tricky question because <laughs> there are a lot of attorneys that just draft the forms. And so vaguely know what really happens with the trust. They just set it up for you. You as the common citizen, you're not necessarily going to know, but for someone like me telling you, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the only thing I could think of is you read a treatise on trust, you know what I mean? But that's mm -hmm. not a sexy topic and no one really wants to, you know what I mean? Like even me in law school, I'm like, what? I ain't reading that damn thing. <laughs> so it's like, so it, you're in a conundrum because what you want to do, and this is can help your, your listeners is, you want to ask when you're hiring attorneys, you want to ask them, how many of these have you settled? How many oh. of these have you administered? Then that will give you some insight into their knowledge base. Because then the second question you're going to ask them is not only how many have you administered, how many of these trusts have you gone through probate with, right? Because we know trusts should, in quotes, avoid probate. But if the attorney says, oh, all my trusts go through probate, then that lets you know, one, they're not funding or at least they receive, because they just a lot of people, there are attorneys who settle trust, but haven't necessarily drafted all the ones they've settled, like other people's trust flow to them, like me. I get a lot of trust to settle that are not mine because attorneys don't know how to 
do it per se. And so, so that's number two, is you want to ask how many of those trusts go through probate that you drafted? Cause I don't want my trust to go through probate, which means you're going to have to help me retitle it. And, and the word is legally is called fund the trust. You help me fund the trust. And then the third thing you want to know is I want to leave my assets in trust for my beneficiaries for the asset protection versus most attorneys will draft it so that, oh, it goes outright free of trust. So when you're looking and you're trying to hire again, you're going to say, I want to leave assets in trust for generations. And this is how you can do the generational wealth, because then you can say money remains at my child's death. I want to go down the bloodline. I don't want it to go to his or her spouse because one, you might not like them or two, they could remarry, have a whole different life. You know, they're not good with money. They may have dependency issues, a whole host of things as to why you don't want it to go that person and you rather it end up with your children, your grandchildren for that matter. But you have to leave it in trust to control that, right? Because if you give it outright free of trust, then it goes into that child's bank account, their investment accounts, but all under their social security number. So whatever they want to do, they can do with it because it's theirs. What you hoped would, you know, they do with it doesn't matter, doesn't because they can do what they want. But if you leave it in trust, then your terms follow the money. And mm-hmm. then as long as your rules are, um, you know, there, then they have to do it versus there are some clients to say, oh, my clients are, my children are doing well for themselves. Well, you don't have to put terms and conditions on them. You might just say at my death, they can have complete access, but as long as, but if they did have that lawsuit, credit or divorce, you know, the bulk of it is protected because they're only taking out what they need when they need it. Okay. So going back a little bit, what is revocable and irrevocable trust? Because it sounds like the irrevocable has more of a protection per se, or like, yeah, what's the difference between the two? Okay. So, okay. So a revocable living trust is one that you can control, meaning you're considered the grantor, set lord, trust maker. You made the rules. Everything stays under your social security number and you can be the trustee, which is the person that runs it, which is where most people are. They're like, it's my money. I want to make the rules and I want to run it. And when you die, it then becomes irrevocable, meaning you're not... Your terms are there, but you're not the trustee running it anymore. Someone else is the trustee adhering to the rules you created, right? And it's under an EIN now when you died, right? Okay. So that's the difference between a revocable and an irrevocable. Now you can set up irrevocable trusts today. I could set up an irrevocable trust, but the, the rules have to be the same, meaning it can be my rules but I can't run the money, right? Because when a revocable became irrevocable, I was dead, right? I I wasn't the trustee. So if you set up a irrevocable trust today, then typically I'm going to go get an EIN, just like I would when if when a revocable became irrevocable. I can set up the, the rules that the, the trustee has to follow, but I can't be the trustee, right? right? So I could set up an irrevocable trust and say, give, you know, uh, I want it for my benefit. But what happens is if the trustee doesn't agree, because it's usually discretionary, then they can tell me no, and there's nothing I can do about it. So most people Uh, don't want to set up irrevocable trust today because they lose a little bit of control because even though they made the rules that are in that trust, it's still up to the discretion of the trustee to, to make the distribution. The only reason a lot of people, the only reason certain people will set up irrevocable trust today are they have very large estates, and so they're not using the money anyways. And they're like, let's just get it protected because I'm not using it anyways. Let's just move it over there, get invested, and we'll do some tax strategies to offset the taxes. Or they have a special needs child, right? We might set up um, something for our irrevocable trust right now for a special needs child. Or if I have, like, again, high net worth people, they're like, I'm going to set up what they call gift trust for my children. I'm going to set up trust today for my children and shell money over there because, again, I'm getting it out of my estate. So irrevocable trust versus revocable, it's all about control. Okay. If you want more control over your assets, you want to do what you want, when you want, make the rules, you're looking at revocable. You're thinking, I don't need the money. I'm okay with making the, I get one shot at the making the rules in this irrevocable trust because then it's locked in, but I'm okay not being the trustee because I'm not really going to need this money. Then you're looking at an irrevocable trust. And right now, irrevocable trusts, you know, are not t- typically the most desired by your regular rank and file people. It, really what you want to do is a revocable and then it becomes irrevocable for your kids. You know what I mean? So you, that's why you're passing down that protection. Thank you for tuning into the episode thus far. I want to remind you that She Discovered also has episodes on our YouTube channel, She Discovered Podcast Extension. 
As you enjoy audio episodes, tune in for further discussions on topics like spirituality, dating, sexuality, and entrepreneurship. And don't forget to click that subscribe button and notification bell to be updated on new released episodes. Finally, if you'd like to donate to the production of this podcast, please check out the link in the show notes. Thank you for being a part of my discoveries and enjoy the rest of the show. How does it now come into play with sickness, like with power of attorney? How does power of attorney play in with wills and trust? So let's stay on the the, the trust train. How does that yeah. work now when you're talking about, well, I'm not, I haven't passed away, but I do have dementia or some type yeah. of other illness. Yeah, you're 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 hitting on the the nail on the head, which is most people are living longer, but not necessarily better. And so everybody, whether you get a will or a trust, or if you decide not to do estate planning at all and just put beneficiaries on all of your assets, everybody needs powers of attorney, health and financial. Um, sometimes your state may call it advanced healthcare directives. Doesn't matter; they they just ha- handle the health side of things. But um, think of it this way: some of, especially some older folks, will say, "Oh, I already." put my kid on at my bank account. Well, if you wanted to, if your child wanted to call social security, how are they going to get access, right? They got to play mm-hmm. like you because they need a power, a financial power of attorney to get access. Some people will say, oh, at my, um, the doctor's office, my child's already on there. Yeah. But what if you're in rehab? Rehab is not the hospital. So they don't respect the hospital's power of attorney. They want a more general. So when you're doing estate planning, everyone should be getting a general durable. Durable means a power of attorney. Um, it lasts until a death. Powers of attorney are no longer effective after a death, but everyone should be getting a general durable financial power of attorney and a general durable healthcare power of attorney or advanced healthcare directives, whatever you want to call them. And typically in your health advanced healthcare directives or your healthcare power of attorney, there's going to be a HIPAA, which is the authorization to disclose. So HIPAA, everybody's always used to the HIPAA privacy laws where people, the hospital can't disclose your information. Well, there's usually a HIPAA releasing your healthcare power of attorney or your advanced healthcare directives. And then there's a living will. A living will is you're alive, but not so well. Do you want to be prolonged with artificial nutrition and hydration? And so I always tell people a living will is just an expression of your intent. The person that is appointed as your representative under the healthcare power of attorney, they have the final say. So even if you said you want to be prolonged with artificial nutrition and hydration and your agent says, no, we're not going to keep doing this. This is a waste of money. They can just say no and stop the train. So it's very much more important to have the actual power of attorney than it is to have the living will. But people always confuse thinking of the living will as that's the end of life. There's mm-hmm. so many more decisions that need to be made with care power of attorney, like choice of physicians, medications, what day is the surgery, you know, all those are decided upon by the agent under the healthcare power of attorney. And even within, cause we're using scenarios with, um, parent and child, but these are all the same Mm -hmm. fundamentals that would apply for a couple as well. Absolutely. Because they don't know if you're estranged, especially in the African-American community. There are couples that for benefits reasons, they're not getting divorced or they don't want to split assets. So they just live separate lives. So one person may be living here and another person may live in Arizona, but they ain't been together in 20 some years. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. institutions don't know what's going on within the personal dynamics of a family. So you always want to have those healthcare powers of attorney because they don't care if you're married or not. They don't, that doesn't, that's not the, you know, in this day and age, that means that can mean a lot of things Mm -hmm. or a lot of not a thing. So you're telling me if I have a power attorney in place, if a person has a power attorney in place and says, well, I'm married, but I'm putting my sister as power Mm -hmm. attorney, then even though this is my spouse, my sister actually has. Absolutely. Yes. The sister has control. Yes. Oh, the marriage so means many, nothing to them. Oh, because so many times you think like it doesn't matter if I have this in place, but because the spouse always gets the the mm-hmm. leg up. Yeah, no, it doesn't. The spouse doesn't hold any hierarchy. Now, if you if you fail, like in certain states, like in Indiana, if you fail to get a power of attorney, then there is a hierarchy. They will put the spouse above the sister because you didn't do anything, right? Mm-hmm. So they're just going to go with the natural, in quotes, order of things. So spouse, then kids, then grandkids, then parents, you know what I mean? Then siblings. So all of this that is being put into place is our is for our protection because yeah. like you said if we don't put these things into place then the state or the government decides how these things are put into Correct. place yeah and you can see what they already decided by just going to look at your state statute so you can go look and see what's called <clears throat> intestacy laws i n 
meaning without, right? Without, if you don't have a plan, you look at your state's intestacy laws. If you want to look at, um, you can even look up your powers of attorney to see um, what's what are the rules regarding your powers of attorney? Because certain people think, oh, I just need to get, you know, witnessed. Well, some states require your power of attorney to be notarized. Some states require it to be notarized and witnessed. With the will, for instance, some people think, oh, I need to get it notarized. Indiana doesn't care about notarization of a will. They want two disinterested witnesses, people that would never inherit. So anybody, you can look up right now, what does your state require for a valid will, a valid trust, uh, and powers of attorney to see how things would play out and if you don't like that default, then you need to be getting a plan for sure. Mm-hmm. How do you set trust a modified version where you just like, let's say if it happens and your child gets it at 16 and you're like, I don't want you running a muck out here with what I left to you. Yes. Is there a modified version? Because I remember you saying that, well, I'll put it in the trust that they only get this certain amount. And then mm-hmm. when they're 25, they get another level. And then when they're 30 or 40, they get the entirety. So how does that work? Like if you go to an attorney and you, you're asking for a will, they're going to, and you have minor children, they're going to set up trusts under that will called testamentary trust. Because a, a last will, the formal name is last will and testament, testament meaning um, after death. And so these testamentary trusts, meaning they don't come into play until after the death. And because they're under a will, that means they go through probate. But those testamentary trusts already have what we call staggered distributions. They distribute the money upon a child um, attaining a certain age, whether it's 18, 21, 25, or 21, 25, 30. These are the ages that are typically seen in forms. You can always change those forms and change those ages. But what they're saying under the testamentary trust is they're going to shell out free of trust, a third of the inheritance at 18, a third at 21, a third at 25, remember? And now we know that you're leaving a protected state to an unprotected state because the testamentary trusts are irrevocable. They will have EINs, but then the attorney is drafting it so that the, the checks leave the trust at different stages. You actually, if you like the concept of a trust, generational wealth, protecting the assets, what you want to do is leave the assets in trust. And then what you do is you phase access in for your beneficiaries. So for instance, if you, my child who is uh, 11 now, I always say it's like a plane. He sits in the back of the plane until he's 20 in my trust, 22, which means I pick who the trustees are. And because it's in trust, it's in an irrevocable trust with an EIN, these assets are protected. At 22, he can come to the front of the plane and be a co-pilot with my trusted co-trustee. And this is him kind of learning what it means to be a trustee, investments, stocks, bonds. He's getting his financial education. And I picked 22 because I figured he'd be done with college, maybe moving on to a higher level degree, maybe not, or just going to his career. But now he can really be invested and focused on this. Now, hopefully he's invested and focused earlier, but now he's required to be at 22. 22 until what age? Well, I picked 40. The world's wealthiest individuals in this country didn't believe their children were ready to run their own finances until 40. Mm-hmm. And so I always ask people, think for yourself, when did you feel like you hit your stride when it comes to your finances? And most people will say somewhere between the ages of 35 and 40. Now, some, if they had a little bit more help, they may say 30. But, you know, to me, 30 was, nah, <laughs> it was 30, 35 yeah. and 40 is where, and I'll be 40 this year is where I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get it. And so from 22 to 40, it's like he's training. He's with his co-pilot. Then he can have access. To the money, but his co-pilot has to sign off on, you know, whether or not what he's wanting makes sense, uh, especially if it's too much. Now he mm-hmm. might, so he may still get it, but he may not get the amount that he desired because the co-pilot's saying, mm, buddy, that's, you know, you don't need that much. You can go over here and there's a middle of the road option right here. And then at 40, he can put the, push the um, eject button. It's almost like his co-pilot leaves, but because this is my plane, and before they took off, it was my map. They're still, uh, he's still adhering to my terms. Mind you, the money is still in trust. I'm just allowing him to fly solo at this point at 40. And I made the rules. So money typically doubles every nine years. What I, when I do planning, I always tell the clients to think of you died in the next two years. And we cashed in everything you have, equity in your home, life insurance, retirement, bank account, car, all that. Then make the money double. So say it to one million, one becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes 16, right? You do that doubling <clears throat> to the age that, that you need to get to. So every nine years it doubles. 
And once it double, once you get to that number, you multiply that times 4% because the stock market typically does better than 4%. And mm -hmm. then you're able to determine is that that's what he would get annually in interest only. And if wow. you divide that by 12, you, you can even see it on a monthly, which sometimes is even scarier. So I think I did mine and it was like $26,000 a month. I'm like, what? I wish I was making $26,000 a month. You know, most of us are more, worth more dead than alive. Right. So when you do that math, you're able to put real numbers and then you'll realize, man, he can live off interest only and I can preserve the principal for the future generations because I know there's money gonna be left because he can't get to it. Then I could say in my plan, what's called a limited power of appointment, meaning he is limited to appointing my, my money uh, down the bloodline. Can't give it to his girlfriend. He can't give it to some charity. He can mm -hmm. do all that with his own money, but he can't do it with my money. If I had, had instead left him a general power of appointment, then that means he can appoint the assets generally, whoever he wants. But wow. I instead I left him a limited power of appointment, meaning he is strictly limited to the bloodline. And this is how you do generational wealth. As he gets older, so you sh you know you and your listeners should be updating and reviewing your estate plan because his life will change, the laws will change, and so if he becomes you know financially successful in his own right or a good steward of the money, etc., I may lessen it. I may say he can have interest only, and then beginning in the fifth year following my death, he can have access up to you know ten percent of the principal, twenty percent, and you can stagger it as high as you want to a hundred percent if you want to, or you could cap it and say, no, no, you can never get more than 60% because I want 40% to go down the bloodline. I always want to leave assets in trust because it's protected. And thus, if your child doesn't need it, let it grow. And then at a death, any balance that remains, you can control it and say that it goes down the bloodline as opposed to cutting checks out at certain ages and certain milestones. And then God forbid your child has a car accident or some type of lawsuit, back taxes, and there's your money gone to the creditor. Wow. This, all of these are very strategic and very necessary. Cause again, like I said, we can put these things into place but mm -hmm. then because of these disclaimers, right? You're just like, oh, or, you know, the fine line, the things printed on the fine line. You're like, oh, but I didn't know. I left this for my son. I thought it was fine. I didn't know if he got into a car mm -hmm. accident or he had, you know, the right to say, well, I want to give it to my girlfriend <laughs> or, you know, I want to put it here. So all right. of the elements are are very important. I would say, so speaking of generational wealth and this method, how would you describe with all the talks of general wealth that we see on social media? How would you describe general wealth? To me, generational wealth is where you're really being strategic about repositioning your assets, um, leaving them in trust for the right family. Right. If you're if your children are well off and say you're an older person and you're not interested in doing the trust, that's fine, too. But maybe what we do is we need to talk to that next generation that's going to inherit and say, how about you? Are you interested in a trust based plan? You know, mm -hmm. and how we can make that money move. So I don't I'm not here to pitch everyone needs a trust because everyone doesn't. There's you know, if you're if your goals don't align with that, you just want to get it to the next generation. Because, you know, in our culture, especially there are some people that say that I let the kids take care of them kids. You know, I did my job or whatever. And that's OK, too. But let's not go through unnecessary processes like probates. Um, if we can avoid them and let's be strategic. So to me, generational wealth, you know, it's all well and good to build it, but what are you doing to protect it, to preserve it, to have the conversation with your family about how they're going to receive the inheritance? That's, you know, that's what I perceive generational wealth to be. And then teaching them, you know, how to how to invest, how to grow the money. And yeah, there's some do-it-yourselfers. I'm not a do-it-yourselfer. I'm not going to sit down and learn the stock market. I don't have time for that. I don't want to learn it. I I mean, yeah, I have a finance degree, but I don't want to track the market. I don't want to guess. I don't. So it's okay to hire people to get results. Mm -hmm. Now, are they going to be the maximum that you could get? Maybe, maybe not, right? Because when you're doing it yourself, you're gambling on yourself. You could lose it all. You could win big, you know, it's all a risk. And so you got to just be calculated when it comes to those risks. So for me, I think our community just needs to be very cautious about thinking that you can really do it all yourself because you can't and you shouldn't, you know what I mean? Because there are people that get paid to have taken the time to learn some of the more intricate concepts. And so because one industry 
is really pushing do it yourself versus you, you think that you can do it yourself in another industry. And that's that's I think that's where we're going to really fall trapped to a loss of wealth, if, mm-hmm. if you will. I what I'm hearing you say, and a lot of times I think we even confuse what does wealth mean? Because a lot of times like, well, I got mad money. I got a lot of money. Yeah. I'm rich. You know what I mean? I'm wealthy. How would you define the word wealth? Because for me, a lot of times wealth stands for assets. Yeah, to me, wealth is wisdom. Wealth mm-hmm. and wisdom go hand in hand. So you can, I have a hundred thousand here that will leave money to their children and that is wealth to them, the recipient. I can have a millionaire who's leaving t- uh, money to their children and they don't care anything about it because it's not to them. It's not um, as significant as maybe even their own personal wealth. So it has nothing to do with the actual money because I can have a hundred thousand who did a really good job saving, traveled the world, went on experiences that the millionaires never did because they were constantly grinding in board meetings, you know, doing the work. Mm-hmm. And so the wisdom that comes with the receipt of the wealth is kind of where I see wealth being because if the hundred thousand there can preserve it and pass two hundred thousand to the next generation versus the millionaire, each generation is blowing it. Yes, they got the acumen and the legal knowledge and the uh, educational background to build wealth, but each generation is blowing it and having to start all over. Is that really wealth? No, you know what I mean. They missed the wisdom part of it, and so I think that you know, for me, uh, when it comes to wealth, it's all built in the wisdom, in the teachings, in the, you know, what they say is earned wisdom is when you, you know, you fall on your own, you you know, behind versus learned wisdom is you watch other people fall on theirs and you take that, you do better. And that's kind of where, where I find that wisdom and that, that learned wisdom is, is where it's at. Yeah. I appreciate that. And as well as generational wealth, I was writing it down here where I was like, the key components that I'm, I'm hearing is protection. You're protecting um, the assets for the future generation. Uh, Communication. You're definitely having conversations with the future generation. Do you want this? This is how I want you to learn from this. I'm hearing education. You're definitely communicating, but educating what is being put into place. And finally, wisdom. I can educate you, but I want you to be wise in what I've just educated you in. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. That is it right there. Yeah, I'm just like, oh yeah, these key components are 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 great. Are great. Yes. <laughs> As we wrap up, there's two questions I want to ask. Uh, actually, someone wanted me to ask you this question: okay. How do couples go about discussing prenups? Because I know we always talked about it in a negative light, like, oh, they don't trust. Like, okay, yeah. The the scenario is always: I'm a woman, I get married to this billionaire millionaire, and he's trying to protect his assets. So we see it as, but don't you trust me? Do you think I'm going to come after your money? But now as an adult, when I see it, I think personally, I wouldn't be mad at a prenup because if you want to protect what you built, go ahead and protect what you built. It's yours. If you're mm-hmm. saying, if we get divorced, you can't have this. I'm okay. But what we built together that's a different scenario, you know, but if you became a millionaire before you met me and you want to protect those assets, why not? I, I want to be able to have that same right yeah. that I become a millionaire a- as the wife and we get married. I want to protect those things. I want to protect my brand. I want to protect my name. You know what I mean? Because people change. You never yeah. know what can happen. So how do you see prenups and do they play a part in this whole trust and everything? They do. Um, and you actually hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what a prenup is. It's you're protecting what you came with. And then you're agreeing that everything from this day forward is ours. And so you're already kind of laying the groundwork for, and, and building that understanding that I value what you built and I had nothing to do with it and I respect it. But from this day forward, you know, I'm a part of it. We're a unit. And so that is that's going to be marital or not. You know, I mean, you can decide, but normally kind of exactly how you explain it is how it is. What I came with is separate. What we build from here to say forward is together. And then if we were to divorce, then we walk away with what we had separate, free and clear. But then what we built together, we need to agree upon at the time or we can agree right now. Right. 50 50 or whatever. If there's infidelity, it could go, you know, you can put whatever you want in it. It's a contract. And so it plays a part in estate planning, because when you do get prenups, then we want to make sure we're not violating them. We don't want to mm-hmm. overpromise things that 
um, are not allowed because of the prenup. <clears throat> you can always revoke prenup. So, you know, if the longer you're married, so you can always even approach that from a couple standpoint that the longer we're married, this goes away. You know what I mean? You can put some miles, like yearly milestones that can uh, reduce certain restrictions or, you know what I mean, or alleviate them completely. And so when you're approaching that conversation, my family law attorney, I mean, family law professor in law school used to think everybody needs a prenup. And to a certain extent, you can, because what happens when a divorce is hurt feelings get in the way, people get spiteful. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, years later, you're looking up and we're friends again. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> yes. most of them mended and it's like, we did all that for what? You know what I mean? But but, but we were so caught up in it, uh, which is one of the main reasons I don't do family law. But uh, you you really do need to treat prenups as a necessary evil because it is, the reality is on the wall that most relationships in 50 percent of relationships will end in divorce, and so, and then the the high statistics and numbers surrounding blended families, it's almost inevitable that you know you're not going in it with your eyes closed, you're going in with your eyes open. So mm -hmm. you approach the prenup as let's just provide clarity, let's get an understanding from the beginning. It's almost like when you marry someone, you're trying to figure out how many kids we're gonna have, what religion we're gonna teach you, what school we're gonna. It's the same type of conversation. Right, right. Yeah. The last question is, should your life partner, and I guess this is where, again, wills and trust are important, because there are certain people in our generation, I realize are like, you know what, maybe I don't want to do marriage in the sense of signing papers, going through the government, I'll just put certain things into place with this life partner of mine. How should a life partner, should they be like the executor of your estate or the trustee? of your state? You can do it both. So, um, so like I'm in a long-term relationship, been together almost 20 some years. And so in these types of situations, you really want to make sure that you have a trust because, um, it allows you to lend certain assets to your partner and then you can swing them back to your joint child, your family, your bloodline, whatever the case may be without it getting, being mixed up in something else that he or she may get into after your death. Um, you're able to kind of control your assets. And so when you're setting up the plan, because there are rules, they really can't violate them unless they're too broad, right? If there's a lot of discretion in them, then yeah, you can make them co. So you can have a co-trustee, a co-administrator, a co-executor of your estate. And that helps with ensuring that there's a little bit of oversight if it were ever to be questionable. When you're in a position when you have a partner and you have children together, it usually, there's usually no, there's less of an issue, right? Because you have the, if they only have children with you, there's, you know, that common denominator, but you still mm -hmm. have the influences of this new partner that could come into play after your death. And so having an estate plan, in particular a trust-based estate plan, is what you're going to want to do if you're in a blended family or if you're in those long committed relationships. Okay, good. What would be the last words you would leave to my listeners in the sense of like the benefit or the importance, I should say, and also putting into place trust and wills? What would be your last words? I mean, I feel like we've seen it all play out in public for celebrities. So people with money who you would all assume would get it right, would take the time. They got the money, the resources to get this plan in place, but yet they don't. And then we see how horrific the family dynamics, how it's all plastered over the social media and the news outlets, how the splits and the inheritance are not what we expect. And so it's it's really, really time for us to kind of like wake up and realize like if they can get it wrong, why what makes you think we can't? And we're not, and we don't even have half the, you know, half the wealth that some of these people have. Right. And so we all see what happens when death and money and grief get in the way and how families are destroyed and ruined. And we have so many other attacks on, you know, the black family, the minorities in this country. Why let this be another another in uh, mm -hmm. to a our family dynamics. And, and so it's imperative that, you know, you don't live forever. You don't, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. So we just need to move now because you're leaving everything you fail to do right now. You're leaving it up to your family to do. And they have no clue. They don't know where your stuff is. They don't know what you want. The goal is to have a legacy worth remembering. And unfortunately, most people don't. When you hear the families who have done the planning, just listen to the story, how happy, how smooth, how thankful they are. That's where we want to end up. That's where everybody wants to end up. So we got to put in the work today. 
even if it's going to cost us a little bit of money. It ain't free. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I love that. So how can we get in contact with you? How can we follow you? Let us know your social media and your website. Yeah, perfect. So of course, I have my own law firm, Norton Estate Planning, an elder law firm here in Indianapolis, Indiana. Again, I concentrate my practice on trust-based estate planning, but you can find me on all forms of social media. So I'm on um, TikTok at Jen underscore the legacy strategist. You can find me on um, Instagram at Jen the legacy strategist or no. Norton Estate Planners is on Instagram and The Legacy Strategist on Instagram. So I have two handles. I have one for the law firm and one for myself. I'm on Facebook, Norton Estate Planners. My website is www.estate-planners with s.org. Um, so, and you can call me if you need to at 317-572-8696. Thank you so much. Again, I really appreciate all the gems that you have provided for not only me today, but for my listeners. Because again, I think in these elements, not only have we not been privileged to get certain financial literacy, you know, I think these are also elements of things that we haven't been taught because for generations and generations past, we we haven't had the privilege to learn these things and put it into place. And some would say this was on purpose mm-hmm. so that we cannot continue to succeed and leave legacies, right? But like you said, this is a way for us to educate ourselves, move wisely in leaving legacies. So I okay. thank you so much for the work that you thank do. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with your listeners and let me know if you ever need me to come back. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So listeners, again, as always, I hope that you receive discoveries in this episode, education on this episode, and continue to apply it as needed. So tune in next time to She Discovered Podcast. Thank you for listening into this week's episode. I hope you've gained some knowledge, insight, and clarity in this moment creating your own inner discoveries. And most importantly, head over to at She Discovered Podcast on Instagram to interact with me and receive more tips and info relating to all topics discussed. As always, you are appreciated.